Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Latin America Intersections, where we discuss business security and social impact in Latin America and the Caribbean region. I am here today with Adam Isaacson, the Director for Defense Oversight at WOLA. That's the Washington Office on Latin America, a respected NGO in the Washington area that focuses entirely on Latin America and all of the, I, I think in many ways you guys focus on human security, right, Adam? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, we, we started out as a human rights group, but we now work things like drug policy, citizen security, um, you know, defense, and other issues like that. Excellent. Can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and also the work that you've been doing uh, lately? Sure. I mean, uh, I sort of cut my teeth uh, as a teenager in the 80s. I was fascinated by what was happening uh, in uh, Central America. I kind of stuck with it. I've always been interested in U.S. policy toward Latin America, but especially the security and military aspects. This historically difficult relationship the, the United States has had with the militaries of Latin America. And since the 90s, I've been tracking, keeping databases and uh finding all the information I can about just what the military-to-military -military relationship looks like around the region. And over all those years, except for maybe one year, the number one recipient of that assistance has been uh, Colombia. Uh, so Colombia is the country I've gotten to know best. I've never spent more than a month there at a single visit, but I, I've been there about 80 times. I've seen about 24 of the country's departments. Um, and so that's the country I've probably gotten to know best. I do a lot of work, too, uh, in Mexico, especially the, the border region, um, and uh, occasionally in, in Central America, wherever there is a, a pretty robust program uh, with militaries that have past human rights difficulties, we do try to keep an eye on what is happening um, and how our country is being represented. Now, you guys, and so kind of a side note on that, um, WOLA, through uh, some of your work, has created um, some kind of a database um, that... Is, is helpful in researching um, all the various programs, all the various uh, U.S. assistance programs that are out there for the region. And as far as I know, it's one of the only databases in existence, even, you know, uh, official or otherwise, of that kind of information. Is that correct? 
Yeah. Um, in the 90s, when I worked for the Center for International Policy, we had a joint project with the Latin America Working Group that were bad at titles. We called it Just the Facts. And we built this database of, every, <laughs> as you said, every assistance program. Um, and so we had, you know, and, you know, a page for Honduras and a page for Nicaragua, a page for Colombia, where we were just giving the numbers and a narrative of what we knew about all of the weapons transfers or training programs or exercises, bases, all the things going on. Um, and we kept that up um, over the years. Um, eventually, the, my colleague at Latin America Working Group became the director of WOLA, so it became more of a joint project with WOLA. Um, with all of us. And then I joined Bullet in 2010. That program project is still continues. It went global in the early 2010s um, and is now called Security Assistance Monitor. And it's mostly still uh, hosted by the, the Center for International Policy where I used to work. And it's, a you know, just go to securityassistance.org and you can see, you know, now decades of data about U.S. security assistance. I also, of course, I just like databases, so I keep a personal database, a <laughs> bit of official information that I find interesting, so I can refer to it very quickly. But okay. that's, that, that's not a high traffic site. That's very, very interesting work. And I mean, so so some people might not understand and, and help me to understand this database can also be useful um, and informative for uh, official entities that, that actually work in um, security and other types of assistance to Latin America. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we try, we're not doing a lot of, you know, editorializing on this. It is basically just tables of data, um, with, you know, access to some of the historical and current reports that we can get our hands on. So it's really just a transparency tool. And one of my favorite stories is when we first that started that just the facts program and published the first, you know, we, we actually had money to publish books at the time. So we had a book with a chapter on every country, uh, the, the Pentagon ordered 40 copies because <laughs> they said, we don't exactly Absolutely. know what we're doing either. It's great to have this. <laughs> well, it, it's as if like their lists like that just haven't been put together on some of these despair programs. And, um, gives, you know, some you people know, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, everybody talks in, in, in government about the need to have whole of government approaches. You know, and you hear that, that term all the time. And I'm like, you know, if you don't work in government, you don't really understand why it, what's the big deal? Of course, you're all in the government. Why the hell don't you just work together? But it turns out that really different agencies with different funding accounts overseen by different congressional committees have no visibility on what each other are doing in the same countries. Uh, and I, I, I learned that early, was shocked by it. And I'm, I continue to be surprised by it, I guess, because I've never worked inside government. Adam, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you just fine. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I think I got disconnected for half a second there. You you left off, um, at least on my end, where uh, different government agencies, um, I think you were getting into how they don't always seem to, to align. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that again. Go for it. You know, one thing I've noticed is, you know, in inside government, uh, you always hear government officials in hearings or elsewhere talking about the importance of whole of government approaches to um, dealing with problems. And, you know, I've never actually worked inside government, and it's kind of hard sometimes to figure out why that's a big deal. You're all in the government. Why don't you just work together? Uh, you're on the same team. Um, but it turns out that uh, in something like security assistance, over the years, there's been so many programs and accounts developed that are carried out entirely by different agencies and funded through separate separate legislation and overseen by different parts of Congress 
that they don't have any visibility on what each other are doing, uh, even within the same country sometimes. Um, you know, the, the State Department has a big narcotics aid program and the Defense Department has a big narcotics aid program. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, there's... Um, uh, there, there's there's training programs uh, offering counterterror training in the Defense Department uh, and in the State Department and some separate ones carried out by the Special Forces. And uh, yes, they aren't always lashed together well. So, I mean, some people who know my background will know that I'm, I, you know, I'm still an Army Reservist and I've spent some time in, in civil affairs and special operations and things like that. Um, but then also my professional life. Uh, a lot of what I focus on is business and government relations and social impact, right? And right. so you run into a lot of the same programs and agencies as well as working with NGOs and businesses, right? And it, it is kind of odd that there's that there's often seems to be um, a need, I don't want to say a lack, but a need for more, I, I guess you could call them gophers or people that are there specifically mm-hmm. to find and create partnerships between all these various entities to amplify the impact of what they have going on. Because there's just, you know, if you're, I, I think one thing I've seen myself, and I don't mean to go off on my own tangent here, I want to listen no, more no. to what you have to say, but I've just noticed that in, in my work, I often become the de facto um, partnership builder, you know, because I, I usually keep a pretty good awareness, even without tons of databases, <laughs> mm-hmm. I probably should. I probably should keep more databases, but um, you know, I, I end up sort of leveraging and creating and leveraging these partnerships between different governments or different governments, excuse me, different agencies. Both <laughs> might as well be right, right. Different different agencies, <laughs> different governments, um, different NGOs that just simply don't have awareness of each other, even in the same regions. Right. And and I think yeah, we find that a lot. Yeah. And the value of that, of having just one or two people um, that go and scout out, you know, what's going on with other agencies, NGOs, um, communities, even, you know, finding the the right community leaders is absolutely essential to um, not just building partnerships and maintaining awareness of who else is doing similar things to you, but figuring out how you can create efficiencies between those agencies and those organizations. Right. Uh, to kind of amplify that whatever impact it is that you're going to have, you know, if you're a business, you want ROI, but you also want to have good standing with the community, right? Anyway. Yeah, I think if, yeah, if, if you can do that well, there's always going to be plenty of work for you uh, because I don't see I mean, that the, the people actually in the agencies uh, have a strong, strong incentive to stay in their own lane, as they often put it. Right. And I don't see that. I don't see that weakening. Um, despite all the talk about whole of government solutions. So for people who can be those that glue or the go between, whether they're inside or outside of government, there's always going to be opportunities. I think. Well, with, with just, even if it's informed, to add, a, add a dash of optimism to that. One thing I can say, um, you know, and I have to be careful what, what I say about the inside as it were. Um, and I try to, you mm-hmm. know, I try to stick to the, the business and social impact side, but um uh, at least from a military perspective, you do have um, more people bringing sort of the civilian insight into these military career fields. And that includes things like um, training in, say, Lean Six Sigma, where your your entire mm-hmm. existence is about finding those efficiencies. And yeah, in business, that might be services and, prod- and production, but in um, government agencies or social impact work, you know, that's looking at creating 
literally the best partnership you can and amplifying the effect of it. Right. Or it can't be, it can't be. Yeah. Like that. Um, yeah. And I hope it, I hope it does happen more on, on, a, on that large scale that you're talking about with things like mean six Sigma. I mean, what I've seen more is that at, at particular moments in particular, like say U S missions, uh, they'll go through a golden age where there really is good uh, collaboration. Absolutely. It really seems to be dependent on the people themselves rather than any Absolutely. processes or procedures that would take place. It can be very dependent on leadership, very, very yeah. dependent on, on leadership and, and the buy-in from the communities, the buy-in from, you know, if we're talking military, the buy-in from, from the soldiers, et cetera. And, you know, me personally, I've had the privilege both in my civilian life and my uh, military career uh, to have some incredible learning experiences under incredibly good leadership and incredibly <laughs> bad leadership as well. And I think one of the things that really set people apart was the willingness to, uh, like the word you collaborate, like the willingness to collaborate and get out of your silo and take a look around and again, maintain that awareness of what other people are doing, you know, and that can be as much a security intelligence issue as it is a looking for opportunity. You know, looking for opportunity right. to really have that impact. And, I, you know, I'm sorry we got off on this tangent because we really need to talk about what's going on in Colombia. Um, but we can, we can bring it back to Colombia. I mean, yeah. Colombia is a place where you see territorially, um, you know, Southern Command or you know, U.S. defense uh, personnel operating in the same general territories or regions outside the capital as USAID or at least USAID's contractors, for instance. Yes. And you don't see that in, in many other places in Latin America. And I think there have been periods where they've worked close to hand in glove and others where they're just completely hardly, there's hardly any Venn diagram at all between what they're doing. Um, I think right now, I hate to say it, I, I think right now that the Venn diagrams aren't overlapping very much. Um, and some of that may be the, the fault of Colombia's government, which isn't too clear about its priorities out in those territories. But there were periods like uh, early 2010s uh, where there was more um, uh, coordination and, and, and communication between the two agencies. I don't know what you're, you you were in Colombia for a long time. Um, but, you know, you the, well, and luckily I had different roles as well working together is one of the hardest uh, or one of the you know real emblematic examples of how well you're really working together because the missions are different, but the goals are generally the same and the territories are the same. Exactly. Well, and, you know, again, it comes down to having awareness of, of who else is out there and who else is actually on your team and you don't even know that they're there. <laughs> I mean, God, that's crazy. But yeah, yeah it yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, again, that comes down to. Uh, I mean, you, you, can, you can improve that through use of technology, knowledge management resources. I mean, every time I <laughs> see someone with a title of, you know, chief knowledge management officer or something like that, right? Anything along <laughs> those lines, inside government, inside a corporation, inside an NGO, things are going much better. There's more innovation. There's more collaboration because that is, that, that is a person who is literally tasked with ensuring that you know, they, 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 with one, f finding out what's going on, finding out who's there in the first place, mm -hmm. and then finding ways to communicate that information to, to all relevant parties, right? And yeah, and that, that model seems, yeah, it seems better than hiring a czar, you know, to exactly. be above, vertically above everyone else, which has been the approach for a long time. And well, and what's in the past, at least in government. Exactly. And what, what's terrible to me is like sometimes these, these knowledge management roles sometimes um are ignored 
I think, because in some cases I've seen it where you have the the knowledge management officers that were kind of considered to be like a librarian or something. Like people don't even know how to how to some people don't know how to approach that role, and some people don't yeah. know how to approach people in that role, right? Mm-hmm. And again, we're getting off on other. No, you have to be you have to be an organizer. I mean, there's people. Obviously, I work in a community of NGOs. Some of them are strictly working on human rights. Some of them are working on labor rights. Some of them are working on women's rights, LGBT, uh, refugees. Um, but you want to lash together at key moments. If there's legislation, if there's a letter uh, going out, if there is you know, a, an action or an event that we want to all educate on together or write a joint report or just share information at regular meetings, you've got to do that. But that means that somebody has to, yeah, approach people and you know, get their buy-in and get their information while at the same time making clear that, you know, we're not going to step on your turf and uh, exactly. you know, take all the credit, take the funding. Um, well, give credit so where credit is due, like share that credit. I mean, exactly. Share it across, not just um, agencies and similar organizations, but across sectors. I mean, one of the things that I think more people are becoming, are realizing is okay to do, and that is, you know, some people think that there's this, there's these silos when it comes to, um, you know, military in a particular region and an NGO, right? And yet, right. certain military missions align incredibly well with that NGO's mission and can bring incredible resources to whatever that NGO is trying to do and vice versa, right? An NGO may already have the buy-in with the community that a military um, operation needs to reach, correct? And... Right. And, you know, assuming that that everybody's being as transparent as possible about what their goals and their missions are, there's incredible uh, collaboration that can happen there. And, you know, in, in a lot of mutual benefit. And, you know, in, in, in my mind, hey, the social impact is the most important thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we're talking about a corporation and an NGO, obviously, uh, the investors want to get a pretty decent return on investment, but hopefully by this point, they become more aware that they're reducing their risk by working with communities, working through the NGOs. Um, and they're still going to get their ROI, but they're also going to reduce their risk. And they're also going to be doing more or less the right thing. You know, they're going to be able to, to stand up and say, hey, we've been in better compliance. We've gone you know, above and beyond both the expectations and, you know, the regulatory environment, you know, we've, we've met all the standards and, and, and exceeded those. Right. Um, right. You know, in, in yeah. Colombia is a perfect example where you've had ups and downs, you know, um, within those different spaces. And I, I think one thing I want to emphasize on this particular tangent is that there's a lot of room for intersector collaboration and n- not just collaboration within one sector. Right. So, you know, the academic. Right. Um, the NG, the, the academic organizations, the NGOs, um, the, the military and government agencies, um, you know, if everybody's willing to operate with a certain amount of transparency in those environments, then, you know, you can amplify the impact, you can meet mission goals and standards, um, you know, and have a lot of added value to, to everything that everybody is doing in that particular region, but without initial awareness with programs like what you've been working on, you know, you don't even have a good starting point, right? So. Right. So, I mean, you have a key role here then for really special people that we've been talking about, the people that can really connect, build trust, 
and take the initiative to get people to do what they probably wouldn't do on their own, which is to work together more. Um, and, you know, those people, as far as I can tell, are rare. Um, let, let's bring this to Colombia and the whole issue of stabilization or, you know, building state presence or, or, or whatever you want to call it in Colombia. In the late 2000s, early 2010s, there was a large program called the National Territorial Consolidation Program where they picked out uh, 50 or 60 municipalities around the country, counties, and Columbia has 1,100 of them. But these were some of the most conflictive and hardest hit. And in those areas, the idea was, all right, we're going to bring in the military first because you need a security perimeter. There's a lot of guerrillas here. And then as soon as there's a reasonable security perimeter in sort of a phased, coordinated way, the civilians are going to come in. Um, police and prosecutors, and but also the road builders and the, um, the, the judges and uh, the land titlers and all that stuff will come in. And this program did have some early success. The United States put at least half a billion, maybe closer to a billion dollars into it. I've never seen the Southcom number, but you had Southcom and USAID working on it too. And they were, these municipalities were spread over five or six or seven regions around the country. Some of the regions did really well. Um, and they really were starting to work together well. As far as I could tell, and I look closely at these programs a lot, that was because those regions, the sort of, you know, civilian official in charge uh, was really good at getting all the agencies to work together, to uh, stay focused on the mission, to, uh, um, you know, making sure that the ministries in Bogota that really had no idea what was going, you know, the priority of this were still being prodded constantly and energetically by this person who was on their cell phone all day long, trying to pull them into these ungoverned parts of the country. And, you know, for instance, in La Macarena, where a guy named Alvaro Bacarsar was in charge, uh, in, you know, it's about 200 miles south of Bogota, they, you know, they reduced coca growing by about 75%. And wow. they were getting some real buy-in from organizations that had historically lived cheek by jowl with the FARC. Um, it was an interesting experience, uh, but it really depended on the people. There was, they were not able ultimately to sort of mass produce those kinds of people um, and figure out the procedures by which you could have that happen. They created an office in Bogota called the Center for Coordinated Integrated Action, um, which uh, was supposing as a bunch of basically a bunch of like 28 year olds at computer terminals uh, who were supposed to be uh, trying to coordinate all of this. But that didn't work out as well as sort of the key people out there in the field in some of those. And then in other regions where I don't know, maybe the peer person wasn't right or they just were kind of cut out of the loop. Uh, the program really never got off the ground. And then ultimately the, the Santos government uh, a lot of the key people who were running the program, who were doing such a good job, ended up being playing key roles in the negotiations in Havana. But then the consolidation program back in the territories sort of uh, just kind of faded away. It was it was allowed to just lose its 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 emphasis and its and lose steam, which is a shame. And now they're you know with the peace accord now, um, which includes a blueprint for getting government once again into these long ungoverned territories. The whole first chapter of the peace accord is about that. Uh, they're facing a lot of the same problems or the same challenges. Uh, you know, you've got once again, 170 municipalities divided into 16 different zones. Um, and, you know, they've developed plans once again, but, you know, even if there is resources, will they be able to do this efficiently? And will, you know, will the military actually work hand in glove 
with the civilian agencies. It is far from clear that they've, they've solved this yet, but it also, once again, seems to be depending on the people. So one question that I haven't done much work on, but I find interesting, is that Center for Coordinated Action, how do you make that work? How do you actually build a mechanism that creates how do you have continuity with that these special people yeah, yeah. of course how do you well continuity is an even bigger problem in Colombia because almost nothing no initiative ever seems to make it from one presidential administration to the next everybody wants the credit for it right right a lot of people that's, that's more politics and the way things are set up well in and like you said you know can you train i guess so so Let's, so coming at this from a military perspective, right? Like we're supposed to have <laughs> leaders at every level, right? So if something happens to me as the sergeant or the officer on the ground, right? Um, whoever's, whoever's behind me, right? Whoever's next in, in line has at least marginal knowledge of what's going on and mm -hmm. the, the ability to take over the group in my absence, right? Now, if I've done my, my role correctly as a leader, I've created new leaders, right? But there's methodologies right. for that, yes? And it's for specific tasks, right? Um, yeah, so now how, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah, now how do you apply that type of concept where you can, you have, okay, you have this program, you may even have um, methodologies for its implementation. Now, how do you pass that on? What's the methodology for passing that on and creating a new leader that has the right type of buy-in and the right type of credibility and in some ways i'm assuming that most of these people that you've that you've watched in these roles um it probably have a certain amount of passion for this you know and i in many ways i think yeah. you know it, it's almost hard to find people with the right right amount of passion and knowledge right i mean you sometimes you get one or the other but not both um right so it comes with experience too, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you have any specific recommendations to, to create that sort of leadership continuity that's needed for that in Colombia and perhaps other places? Ultimately, a, a key thing would be getting civilians early and often out into the field. Um, you know, the, the military in Colombia simply has just so much more logistical and surge capacity they can get a battalion out into la macarena you know within a month um and be everywhere and they can be starting to do quick impact projects that build the, the population's confidence but simple things they're not going to build the bridge they're going to paint the bridge right um but they're there but ultimately as you said you know these you've got the leaders who are trained to do one thing when it comes time to actually fund and organize an agricultural cooperative you're not going to have 20 year old soldiers do that no absolutely not um and you've got to get the other ministries out there and that means changing ministries and ngos and academics and everybody else that you mentioned but that means changing incentive structures a lot if you're going to build people build a core of people with experience uh the knowledge therefore to match their passion as you put it then you you have to change the incentives for these civilians. A, those civilian agencies don't have a lot of surge capacity like the military does, right? They're always operating at capacity. And, you know, there's plenty of poor people just in the slums of Bogota who need aid just as badly as people in La Macarena. Absolutely. Um, but B, um, for a lot of them, you know, you've gone to college and you've, uh, you know, built some skills and you've become a good technocrat and you've got a nice apartment in Bogota. What a punishment to be sent out to Kakata, <laughs> uh, 
you know, on the edge of the jungle, um, getting bitten by mosquitoes all day with blackouts half the time, um, you know, it's, you don't get the way things are set up right now. You're not getting increased pay for doing that. You're not getting much increased recognition. It would not necessarily put you on uh, a track to getting, you know, promotions and recognition the way you would be if you were in the military. This is the path to getting, you know, medals and promotions. Of course. Not so in the civilian agencies. Um, it's, it's like, you know, why am I being, you know, sent out to Siberia? But it turns out that, you know, if so many of Colombia's problems originate in rural areas, everything from coca to armed groups, then you've got to get people out in those ungoverned areas. So maybe if there was um, higher change, the, change the incentive structure. So maybe if there was higher recognition of these, of these sets of civilians that are willing to be sort of, I guess, expeditionary civilians is might, might be the word, right. If they're willing to do expeditionary type service, you know, would an incentive be yeah. like, even if they're just handing over knowledge to municipal and, and departmental authorities out there in those areas, right. You know, knowledge, tools, equipment, everything else they need. Now, what about, what about, what about programs that involve, and I'm, I'm assuming some of these exist anyway, what about programs that involve bringing young people or, or young leaders or, you know, or effective leaders from some of these regions over for um, training and insight and, and knowledge programs, you know, let, let's say in Bogota for several weeks to a month and building up those partnerships and then being able to send them back to, um, you know, these areas where they already hold buy-in or leadership um, positions, right? So, you know, I mean, I guess that's yeah. that's one of, of several ways to tackle this. And maybe a combination of all might be good, right? Where you have, where you develop a technocrat, as it were, right? A technocrat who happens to be from that area and maybe, and, and so has this underlying passion and, and buy-in to improving the situation as much as possible anyway. You know, I mean, that that's right. And, that, you know, every, you know, all 1100 municipalities of Columbia have mayor's offices. Unfortunately, they don't have a civil service tradition where the same people re- stay working in the mayor's office as a career. Much of the personnel switches every four years when there's a new mayor, which sounds crazy. But yes. Right. Um, but still, I mean, you you first of all, you get that civil service tradition. Second. Yeah. I mean, there should be there is something called the, you know, the, the Superior School for Public Administration, the ASAP in Columbia, that does offer some training for these new mayoral office uh, uh, administrators who come in. Um, people do go through a course. People in the governor's office go through this course. But it would be much better if there could be actually be a, a, a career track more for people at this level who are providing these services. There kind of is, especially, you know, if you're in like the medical department of the depart- uh, of the province, you know, then, yeah, they're not switching new doctors every four years. But still, there's a lot for the most part it has to be just redone and rethought. And a lot of that is just also decentralization in Colombia. Of course, um, uh, municipalities need to be able to they, they, they collect very few um, local taxes or property taxes because you can't uh, collect property taxes until you have actually mapped out and titled land, for instance. Right, <laughs> right. To pay the property taxes. Well, and, and how do um, you... It's all, it's all sort of connected. And then, of course, these stabilization programs are supposed to be titling land. So you got a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but you can see where it would all come together. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I mean, obviously you have to have security to be able to to implement mm-hmm. a lot of this, correct? But it seems like if, right. if there are more partnerships with the Columbia military and any you know outside agencies that that are on board with that as well. I mean, at some point, um, that civilian oversight, that collaboration, 
can, can amplify that effect and, and again, have that continuity because military missions are, are usually more short term, right? Um, right. And security, I mean, there's, there's one kind of security that's just pushing armed groups out of an area for a little while. Yes. There's another kind that's, that's dispute resolution, uh, you know, so people don't turn to the guerrillas every time they have a, a conflict. Um, there's, of course, uh, provision of all kinds of basic services. One thing I found traveling around these very conflictive parts of Colombia, you talk to social organizations that the, well, that the military and the government often regard as being guerrilla tied, you know, right. super radically politically leftist and everything. And they're just, you know, guerrillas and civilian dress. You ask them what they want and everybody says the state ignores us. We don't have any state presence here. What kind of guerrilla supporter wants state presence? That's what you hear everywhere in Colombia. And, you know, they do say don't send the soldiers first. Um, they, they want but they want to see representatives of their government um, actually providing just the just enforcing basic rules and providing the services that we all take for granted. Um, you know, you can't really have a free market economy unless there's some enforcement of basic rules. It's just that always is remarkable to me. I've never heard anybody say, get the government out of here. <laughs> right. We need the government here. It's like the lack of presence is, is creating sort of this de facto um, movement in the arms of anyone that can provide that security or that oversight, right? Or yeah, you don't understand Colombia unless you really understand. Yeah. You know, you don't understand Colombia until you really understand what uh, absence of state presence can really look like and complete abandonment of absolutely pretty populated areas. I mean, I've never done seen this, but I've read a couple of articles about it. And actually, Reuters did a photo essay about it four years ago. Classic example. Um, they went to the Reuters one, for instance, but I've seen it in Colombian press too. went to a town in, again, this is a whole Macarena region just outside in Kakata. They went upriver to a town. You have to go upriver because there's no roads. Uh, they get to the town and, uh, you know, there's boutiques selling, you know, high heeled shoes and stuff like that. There's discotheques, just booming music. You know, it's, it's, it's a relatively prosperous economically because of coca. Um, but, you know, no, no police. You didn't dream of seeing a policeman. You wouldn't dream of seeing somebody from the mayor's office because they're in the county seat way far away. Right. Um, and then you go to any store. And this is crucial. You go to any store and instead of a cash register, there's a scale. Why? Uh, because pesos are hard to come by. It's kind of like a, it's a pain in the right. butt to try to get your hands on the actual currency, even though you're 250 miles as the crow flies from the capital. And I can imagine uh, what the currency is. it's easier is to gonna... weigh coca pesos on the scale to pay for your food. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's what statelessness looks like. Well, yeah. I mean, what, what becomes the currency, right? It's whatever is the highest value commodity, and the highest yeah, so and most... two grams buys you lunch. That's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in what, in, in this is sort of the de facto situation, isn't that people necessarily want this. It's that they, oh, God, no. they have no alternative no. here. I mean, you know, if they could get their hands on actual currency and leverage that. Right. And of course, extortion comes into play and, you know, mm -hmm. and other, other, you know, and, and yes, there is some buy-in into, you know, some of these more exploitative tactics, that exist out there. But in reality, like you just mentioned, I mean, without state presence, I, I mean, there's, you know, what, what do you have? Right. <laughs> and, and again, to me, it becomes again, a chicken or the egg thing, you know, do you create the security first? Do you have the, the civilian oversight first? And, you know, don't, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the, 
that consolidation program on, you know, in its PowerPoint, you know, in, in its PowerPoint conception and its original plans um, kind of had it right. I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the peace accord kind of has it right. They, they do say that there needs to be security first, but not perfect security, you know, a basic perimeter, um, but ultimately right behind much more quickly than it's happened right behind the soldiers has to come the rest of the state, the civilian part of the state. And that's what hasn't happened. And it's not because the military is is making some big power grab, like we're in charge here. It's really that the civilian part of the state uh, is just slower. Um, And there's always, man, we find this even in the United States, there's less interested, less interest always in in funding it fully uh, and giving it the personnel it needs. And it's more deliberative and it's got less personnel that it can spare well, unless personnel, and, like you mentioned, that are really willing to go out to those areas. If, that's right. You know, if they have. And then they have that whole stuff. whole of government articulation thing that we were talking about at the beginning that, you know, they're, they're not, you know, always lashed together all that well. Uh, so that's that's more of what it is. But on paper, that's always been the idea. They've called it a phased sequenced approach uh, that usually has security first, because obviously you can't bring anybody else in if they're going to get shot. Um, but very much more quickly than it's happened brings in the rest. Now let's let's move on to a slightly different subject, and that is yeah. how is some of this security and and the current situation with you know as some people dub it the FARC mafia, you know the offshoots and the mm-hmm. the other people that have sort of um, have backed off from the peace process. Let's just say um, what you know what is what is you know because COVID. So what's what is what are the effects of COVID-19 on these regions at this point from, from what you've seen? Just the, I mean, the overall security situation first, I mean, yeah, you had this peace accord in 2016 that took the FARC off the table and look in the big picture, you know, 15 years ago, there were about 50,000 people in arms in Colombia, mostly nearly all of them in three groups, uh, the FARC, the ELN and, and the AUC paramilitaries. And which one of those Nowadays, groups is the most powerful at this point right now? Well, at this point, I mean, that it's all changed. So now I would say if you took them all together, you had you have maybe 14 or 15,000, which is a huge. You know, that's way better than 50,000. Right. But it's a little more confusing now. You've got as many as 23 FARC dissident groups uh, of which. The majority are now lashed up in two main networks, the Hentil Duarte network and the Ivan Marquez network. That's the FARC. You've got the ELN, which uh, has grown to back up to probably was down to about 1,500 members. And now it probably has about three or 4,000. And the ELN, um, ELN is much more ideological than, than even the FARC, yes? At least that's, yes, that's they, my feeling they, on it from, from my own analysis. But is that true? Yeah, they're, they're definitely less transactional and, and more ideological and, and more sort of deeply rooted in just a couple of regions in the country. And then you've got the, the, the heirs of the old paramilitaries. There's a group called the Gulf Clan, which uh, is a network of narco-trafficking armies, really, that also is very big into doing things like making land grabs. They have another maybe 2000 members. And then there's an increasing number of regional groups, um, uh, the Caparros in the Bajo Cauca region, the, the Mafia Sinaloa in Putumayo, there, there's the, uh, uh, the EPL in Catatumbo. There's a bunch of these. I asked um, Ariel Avila, who works at the, the Fundación Paz de Reconciliación, he has his own like TV show on Semana's cable network. Um, and he's a security analyst. Just asked, I said uh, a few months ago, I said, Ariel, like, 
how many groups in Colombia now exist, criminal or armed, do you think have at least 100 members running around? And he said it has to be at least 50. Okay. So that's the, that's the environment we're in. And so now you have COVID-19 um, and, you know, the restrictions don't really apply to these groups. They are still um, uh, quite active, although they've been, for the most part, there's some, there's some areas of the country that are on fire and they tend to correspond with uh, key narco trafficking routes. Um, there have not been as many pitch battles and displacements perhaps as before. Um, but there are some, um, especially near the Pacific coast and in the Catatumba region near the Venezuela border. What worries us a lot at WOLA is when the peace accord happened, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you always had people who were unarmed, who were just local leaders in their communities, right? They were heads of the local community action boards, or they were heads of local casino organizations. And these are people that take on enormous risk, even as unarmed civilians. Yes, because I mean, there's... Well, you know, when, when say the FARC was like the only game in town in the area they they were in, and people were born and had always lived alongside the FARC, then they probably had some sort of MO where they had, you know, coordinated with the FARC or had to do what the FARC said, but they weren't, you know, hearts and minds with the FARC. They just had to, they always wanted to be as independent as they could. And all of a sudden with the peace accord, they were, they were like, wow, we're able to sort of determine the destiny of our community and, and, and appeal directly to the state for things that didn't last long. That's still the case. Well, assassinations of community leaders have shot up since, since the implementation of the peace accord. This year, it's almost every day. I mean, my God, the most conservative count through the end of March uh, comes from the UN, and they estimated about 54 people had been killed in those 90 days. Um, the NGO Indepas counts as of now uh, more than 100 people killed just uh, through mid-May. Um, so we're talking every day and a quarter, day and a half, there is somebody being killed. It has exploded and it has not slowed with COVID-19. It's harder because people can't you know if you're on the run or you're getting a lot of threats you you end up like sleeping in a different house every few days you can't do that right now because you're social distancing and you're easier to find and your state provided bodyguards might even have been withdrawn for the time being um so people are sitting ducks right now in a lot of these places wow it's kind of that's our our biggest you have the larger criminal organization you still have like a certain amount of I hate to say it, a criminal stability, really. I mean, predictability. Yeah, yeah. predictability. There's nobody norms wants to in live place. in a place that's in dispute. Right. Yeah. Now, sometimes these are the fires that you have to walk through to get to the other end of, you know, a, a better, um, uh, you know, to get to the other end and actually be able to fulfill this this social contract that people expect. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's incredibly sad that you have all of these social leaders who have been working towards this, you know, or waiting for this to happen you know, and, and working with their communities and then, you know, here, you know, here's the peace accord and now it's an, but, but the, the immediate aftermath is that they have to deal with this chaos where their lives are more in danger than they were under, um, under a FARC region. Right. And, you know, that's not giving, that's not giving too much credit to the FARC itself just the simple fact that at least a lot of those elements who have divided and moved into these smaller groups had some semblance of control over their activities. Right. 
And yeah, I mean, this is this is fragmentation. It is so dangerous for the people who are caught in the middle. Well, and this is something a lot Columbia, of us predicted Mexico early on. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now, now here's a question. So, uh, you know what? I have a side question on this one. And, and within Colombia, so we've heard about this happening in, in Central America, right, where mm-hmm. um, where gangs and, and criminal groups have actually been enforcing their own sort of health security policies in territory yeah. control by killing people that are suspected of being sick, as it were. Has that happened at all in Colombia? Have any of these small ter- territorial criminal groups? Um, yes. They've been doing similar things. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I've seen flyers put out by FARC dissident groups in particular, um, to some extent from the ELN and other groups too, uh, basically saying uh, in this town, there's now a curfew. Uh, we don't want to see anybody in the streets after six o'clock. Um, we're, uh, you cannot introduce anybody who's from out of town. They are not welcome here. They cannot come in. Um, there's, uh, you know, obviously limits on who can go outside. And again, these are stateless places, right? The right. It's never able to enforce any of this, but these guys are doing it in the name of COVID-19, but also having everybody out of the way off the streets, no strangers also makes it way easier to load up those go fast boats. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, or and, exploit and the mom product. and pop shops that right now have no money anyway. Um, right. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So no, it's, it's happening, but, and we have, I haven't heard, I've heard a couple examples, but less than say in Mexico, where there's a lot of examples of um, cartels or organized crime groups going out and handing out food baskets and things like that. I haven't heard as much provision of services, but I have heard more just social control. Okay. So it's kind of a mixed bag all across the region anyway, when it comes to how these, how these uh, groups are, are treating communities as they deal with this crisis. Um, I mean, Mexico is crazy where you're seeing all these like, you know, boxes of groceries with uh, the initials of the local cartel. Just, you know, of course, I mean, this is is definitely a marketing opportunity for some of these groups that have larger political aspirations, I guess. Like, you know, I mean, you know, we know how much narco politics is integrated in in much of Mexico anyway. So this is a this is a grand opportunity for some of those groups. Right. Um, Yeah, it is. uh, Anyway, um, so so moving back to Colombia here. Um, you know, one of, one of the, the subjects that, that, um, that you brought up before we started is narco-trafficking patterns and how to deal with, Mm -hmm. with cocaine. Now, um, can you speak to that a little bit? And, and when you say deal with cocaine, um, you know, uh, just help us distinguish between what the international community, um, U.S. security forces and Colombian security forces you know, what their various goals and, and interests might be in, in what, what your thoughts are on those. Sure. I mean, yeah, I brought up narco-trafficking patterns, but ultimately they're not much different than they've ever been. Okay. Um, coca is being grown in almost the exact same municipalities they were, it was grown in 20 years ago. It's barely disappeared from any of those municipalities. So much of the same race as before. And it's barely showed up in any new ones. Um, right now, um, it's likely that the fields are bigger um, okay. and more that and more forest has been cut down in those municipalities and especially in places like Catatumbo or Putumayo in order to grow more. Um, and is this to meet new demand or is this just 
I mean, what what would this? You know, nobody really knows. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, Co- Colombia right now is near, according to U.S. and U.N. figures, it's it's near or at its highest ever amount of coca cultivation and cocaine production, higher than the years of Pablo Escobar, wow. higher than the years of, um, and and some of the, it. Looking at, you know, the DEA is pretty bad about you know getting data out in a timely fashion. Um, but the last, so the last estimates of sort of inflation adjusted price and purity of the street price of cocaine on us streets um is 2016 but it was somewhat down um uh and it had never gone way up in the last 20 years 30 years really of of that data show it reasonably steady with some small fluctuations which indicates that at least in the united states uh you know supply has always been meeting demand you know uh more or less the same um there was a, a period in the late 2000s early 2010s where it was you know somewhat higher um but still nothing that would really be an obstacle to somebody who's determined to get cocaine um so we've never really if 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 you believe in the law of supply and demand um you know the supply was never reduced to the amount that that price really went up um so that looks a lot the same i mean obviously the people in charge of the drug trade uh who is in charge has shifted remarkably over the last 40 years it used to be a couple big Colombian cartels. Then it was a few medium-sized Colombian cartels with power shifting to a couple of big Mexican cartels. And now you have a fragmented array of Mexican cartels and this whole welter of groups in, in Colombia, um, many of them trying to keep a super low profile so you don't even know their names. Right. Um, I mean, and, you have, and, and, you know, now now a lot of those groups are, are managed by actual accountants that have, you know, double books and, and uh yeah, what, and nearly what the an Ivy League degree called the Invisibles. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, a lot of good references. It's gotten to much that more confusing. Uh, if anybody wants to visit that website, shout out to them for the work that they do as well. Uh, yeah, Jerry McDermott uh, wrote an, a piece uh, a little more than a year ago called "The Invisibles," where he makes the argument, and it sounds right to me that your new narco trafficker in a place like Colombia isn't some, you know some some flashy guy you know sitting poolside with a bunch of models and you know nine medallions around his chest it's somebody who may be living in the apartment next to you wearing a cheap suit um and hiding the money that he makes uh somewhere else um they 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 prefer that low profile profile and to be invisible and even like out in the countryside where the gangs are producing this stuff and, and buying and selling it uh, yeah, they're, they're, it's not some big national network anymore. It's not a big cartel or a big national guerrilla organization. I mean, it can sometimes be, but for the most part, it's these little guys. On on that note, Adam, um, I think my personal recommendation, given some of my experience in my consulting work that I've done, um, both on the civilian, you know, both in both in the corporate side and the government side, I I think one of my recommendations would be. You know, don't worry so much about attacking the crops or the distribution mm-hmm. networks, but attack the money, like like really deepen your financial forensics and and the teams that work on that and find out where, you know, you know, leverage your AML teams, right? Your anti-money laundering teams, because that's how you're going to real, really be able to eventually find those trails back to the people that, you know, like you said, are living in those apartments with those sheep suits, right? Um, I don't know if you would agree with that or if or if it really needs if we would really need to emphasize any type of eradication efforts uh, comparable to that. No, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the 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 money is the key. I mean, anybody who's ever watched The Wire knows that, too. But 
there, the reason, why doesn't it ever happen? I mean, A, it's hard. It takes a lot of detective work. Um, it takes a lot of taking on the banking lobby and other things right. in order to get at some of the secrecy. The other, maybe the main reason, without sounding too much like a conspiracy theorist, is that if you do follow the money, it's going to take you to a lot of people who are your quote-unquote allies. True. You pull that thread it's going to take and, you to people, and a lot of people you didn't expect. can't happen yeah. without government. Absolutely. Yeah. You're going to get generals. You're going to get senators. You're going to maybe even get presidents <laughs> under us. Um, you know, you're going to get uh, you know, people who maybe you need for other parts of your U.S. interest agenda. Um, and, you know, you, you not, I mean, obviously the Venezuelan regime is an extreme example right now of government being tied up in, in narcotics and, 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 in, in organized crime, Absolutely. intolerant of it and socking away money, <clears throat> excuse me, socking away money from it. But believe me, uh, pro U S governments, uh, perhaps to a lesser extent, but to a significant extent, will have the same problems. Well, and, and speaking from some experience in this too, I mean, there's a huge difference between the kind of intelligence that you can gather and know who's doing what versus what's admissible in court, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody gets their day in court when it comes down to it, right? You know, ostensibly, right. you know, they're supposed to in most of these democracies, right? And at the end of the that, day, can the- you prove it with admissible evidence, you know? Versus, yeah, we know this guy is a trafficker. Yes, we have the forensics on certain things, but none of that. But the degrees of separation are so much that, you know, you can't necessarily prosecute too many of these individuals, you know, let alone pulling the strings and and having sort of the house of cards fall apart on you. Right. Yeah. I mean, following your own recommendation, though, if, if we were to suddenly multiply tenfold, the rather paltry amount that we currently of, of resources and personnel that we currently put into financial investigations and really, you know, a 10, you know, multiply by 10, what we do to follow the money. Absolutely. Uh, you'd, you'd find a lot more admissible evidence uh, against people. Um, and a lot of it would be pretty inconvenient. Well, and um, oddly enough, a lot of, believe it or not, from, from some other consulting I've done the, you know, a lot of banks in terms of reducing their own risks have a lot of buy-in with this, you know, I mean, they're very aware of their, um, you know, some organizations call them politically, politically exposed persons, you know, in some of these right. different countries. Right. And they take a good look at, you know, who these folks are affiliated with, what kind of, you know, articles have come out on them, what kind of public information, you know, there uh, is has their name on they it. Right. Do some due diligence. They do yeah. some due diligence and they take all of this into account. And, you know, a lot of banks nowadays, um, any any that have any type of international operation um are really looking at compliance as you know part of their risk reduction and and their return on investment because now they're not on the hook for um fees and and legal issues regarding people that they should not have on their books anyway you know so the buy-in is there but the banks at least but that's good for banks i mean the, the panama paper showed us that it goes beyond banks but also a lot of it is you know, as, as has been said, uh, campaign contributions uh, are a huge way that the, the money goes to, to politicians to look the other Absolutely. way. Um, uh, you know, the, all the things that uh, Garcia Luna uh, is now being accused of in, in courts in, in, in Mexico, in the, the Mexican security chief who is now, um, I believe, in U.S. custody. Uh, you know, what he was accused of didn't really involve banks all that much. 
Um, he was getting the, the payoffs in it and, and through different means, of course. um, you know, land, land purchasing and, and, uh, figureheads for holding land. Well, it's just uh, like any legitimate purchases as well. It's like you buy assets and that's essentially, that is your bank. You're parking your, your, somebody will invest value in your business. Or, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Now, let me, let me ask you something. Actually two questions here. So have you seen any cases where, um, someone took those payouts, but you know, on the back of, you know, we'll call it Plato Plomo scenario, but for their communities, mm-hmm. right? Let's say that, um, you know, let's say that I, you know, we have a, we have a local politician who, you know, is not rich by any means and is trying to take care of the community. So in order to keep the peace, they also take some of whatever assets are being offered to them in order to do their part. Right. And assuming in their in their particular case, this is as close as they get to tax revenue in order to do anything hmm. for their community, right? Because I mean, we know that during the Pablo Escobar era, he did build. I don't know how many. It it did not offset the damage that he did, but many communities were happily affected by housing projects and other things, right? And of course, that that's sort of a marketing scheme in and of itself. Now, do you have though specific leaders who would hope? who are hoping to do the right thing and sometimes will make the deal with the devil in order to make say infrastructure projects happen for their communities. Do you have any examples of that? You know, it must happen, but I can't think of any examples. And also, I mean, you'd really have to cook the books pretty hard to prove where you got all that money. Um, Especially, you know, so many municipalities are on on the point of bankruptcy anyway, uh, to suddenly, you know, have money to, to to build actually and if that happened in a lot of these areas we would see a lot of uh, really nice infrastructure projects and we just don't <laughs> okay. um so i don't think it happens that much but certainly yeah in the pablo escobar years churches uh, we heard a lot about that with churches uh you know the local priest would be given a bunch of money and and that would help him and they were you know socking it away into you know swimming pools and rolex watches it was all going into services for the community right here go help the community with this and and that was a way to buy the community's favor but i have not heard that with you know politicians sort of doing a robin hood thing gotcha certainly possible it's not doesn't stretch the imagination but i can't think of anybody who's been caught or accused of doing it i think i'm just going to do i'm going to do some extra research and see if we can find some examples like that because i'd be really curious if they've been able to uncover things like that and you know because that in that begs the next question that i want to come up with and that is it it ties into this right and going back to the question of what the international command community should do in its own interest right so now so u.s national security policy has an interest in what goes on in colombia right colombian security policy obviously has an interest in it in what mm-hmm. it does in what is going on in the outcomes right um other countries around it right so so we've talked about um you know effective civilian leadership do you have other specific examples of services or um or infrastructure pro or what is it that's been really effective in terms of getting some of these communities and i know it's 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 somewhat chaotic out there right now but in the past and up to this point what's been some of the most effective projects or services that have allowed these communities to detach themselves from you know these former provider of of a lot of these mm-hmm. services right I mean, that's an oversimplification, but I would start with, and I mean, the, the two things that I would, I would say would be land titles okay. and farm to, farm to market roads. 
Okay. Uh, you know, these are rural areas with, you know, uh, uh, very few services and you don't have to suddenly, I mean, it would be great, but you don't have to suddenly put in, you know, irrigation systems and health posts and uh, high schools and colleges everywhere that would, that comes later. Um, but so much of Columbia's conflict is about land. Yes. Getting people t- clear title to their land has been super hard and it goes against the interests of large land well and let me interject there's been signs on them there's been fights over people who have abandoned their small farms right because of the conflict and then land restitution is a huge ride and then you have buyers come in from you know we'll just say the city or from other and and Mm -hmm. i have my own feelings on that i think a lot of the the um I call them land vultures, <laughs> but, but yeah. like they know what they're doing. They are trying to to pencil whip a title over something that they think nobody's going to come back to, right? And yeah, and there's and then you have these they, conflicts they, of interest. You know, the government signed off on it, local or, or national, right? And now you have small farmers that want to go back to these lands, but you know, like you said, this this issue of the of land title, right? And then on top of that, and, you, know, you, I you think can't you put it on have the head. a. I don't think it's an oversimplification at all. I think those two things have to be in place even, you know, in, in conjunction with or or even before security. I mean, you can provide a lot more security on the back of that if people can actually get their goods to market or they know that even if they've had to leave an area, they hold the title to that place that they, you know, that's been in their family for years. Right. Right. So much of security depends on people's buy in uh, and, and, you know, it, it's very rare to find coca grown on land that's titled because there's just too much at risk. You know, you risk losing it. Absolutely. Legally. Uh, and without a land title, you can't even get credit. Well, maybe from a loan shark, but you can't, you know, you, Which you, just you back to any money. Groups. So, yeah. Um, so it's so crucial. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of stupid bureaucracy, um, which is really designed in order to keep small landholders from getting titles. Um, that has to be overcome there. I mean, even like USAID programs that have tried to expand land titles and have only gotten like a trickle of titles. It's been very hard. And then, yeah, I mean, roads are just expensive. I mean, that's that would require, you know, rich Colombians to pay a lot of taxes in order to get roads actually going to a lot of these rural areas. It is remarkable how roadless Colombia is, oh, even compared to... I've done some four-hour rides number across number of kilometers per population <laughs> compared to even like other Latin American countries is, is re- remarkably low. Right. Oh, man. You know, I, I do a lot of work like in, in Mexico and you go down near the Mexico-Guatemala border, which is a very poor area. Uh, but Chiapas has decent roads, um, yeah. reasonably well-paved roads. Maybe that was in part to fight the Zapatistas, but you can get everywhere pretty easily. And the bus network is amazing. And you know, Colombia has nothing like that. Well, and you find that here in Puerto Rico as well. I mean, every mountain hmm. road is completely paved. Now, it's very windy. And if I'm not the driver, I right. I get very sick. But... I know I can make it anywhere on the island within, you know, two hours. And I know that if I was going to buy, say, coffee, right, if I was going to buy a, you know, a truckload of coffee beans, I'm going to be able to get it within, again, a couple of hours. Um, you know, right. and, and, and it's only the cost of labor at that point in time. It's not going to be, you know, a, a gazillion mechanical issues or 10 hour drives across, a, a, you know, a 10 mile area. Right. And, right. I mean, 20 miles an hour is like a luxury. Oh, my God, we're flying. Yeah. 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 I mean, you've yeah. you've we've probably crossed a lot of the same the same roads down there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's no joke, especially going up and down three sets of mountains to to get from, you know, to get across a, a, a 30 mile stretch. Right. 
Uh, right. And it, yeah, it, it's great if you're a coca grower. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Because coca paste can fit in a backpack and, and you know, you, that, that's a whole field's worth of product. Uh, it gets turned into this basic paste that you can get, you know, you don't, you can get to market easily enough, but God help you if you're going yucca or cacao or something. Well, it almost seems like good roads have a dual role. You know, if you want to be able to, instead of maintaining security on site at all times, right? Like security forces on site at all times, it's much mm-hmm. easier to react to a situation, you know, and the cost of that, right? So maintaining security forces in a given area has a significant cost to it, Right. So besides right. farmers, you know, being able to take their goods or, or any type of trade, you know, to these regions, you also can can bring security more in, in my opinion, on an on call basis if you've created that road infrastructure. Right. So, yeah, I don't think it's an oversimplification at all. Like you said at the beginning of that, I mean, like, I think those two things that you mentioned are absolutely essential. I'm in complete agreement, you know, and I wish I thought of it first, but you're absolutely right. So, <laughs> I mean, they, they, like I said, they're hard and they're expensive, but yeah, there's no real substitute. Um, and unfortunately, Columbia often has, Columbia's gotten pretty good at doing quick impact projects. Like they're really small things. We'll build you a box culvert or we'll build a new community center down in the middle of town, um, which is great. It's a good first step. It, it shows the flag. Um, but then you got to keep going and, and, and do the things like roads and, and land titles and they never seem to get there. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, you have the buy-in and you have the transportation to, to effectively leverage that right through those two things. Yeah. So, um, listen, I know we're, you're, you're running short on time. Um, so are there any, (laughs) are there any final thoughts? So let's tie two things together. Give us your final thoughts. The most important things that you think, um, the audience should know in the next like five minutes and also any shameless plugs you have throw that in there too. (laughs) Um, on Columbia, I mean, the the two things, two things I have my, yeah, I mean, two things immediately that I have my eye on the first is, you know, the Colombian army has improved a lot in over the last 20 years uh, in its professionalism and in its respect for human rights. Um, you know, that you can even measure it just in the number of like extrajudicial executions that they were accused of. It went from, you know, several hundred a year to low double digits um, and, you know, more uh, accountability to the civilian justice system. That said, um, the last year has been terrible. There's been a lot of steps backwards. Um, the, the, the revelations in the media that they were uh, returning to body counts as a measure of success, uh, a series of corruption scandals, uh, an attempted what appeared to be a cover-up of um, an ordered killing of a former FARC combatant in, in an area where the Columbia really needs to establish more credibility, um, a, a bombing of, of an encampment that killed a bunch of kids, and then a cover-up of that as well. And then just, you know, over the last couple of months, revelations that mil- military intelligence has been um, not only following and threatening, but uh, spying on um, dozens and dozens of reporters and Supreme Court judges uh, and uh, other politicians and human rights defenders, but also 
other officers um, trying to root out would-be whistleblowers or uh, moderate reformers within the, the institution itself. There's something rotten going on, and I hope that Colombia can get a handle on it, and I hope that the United States government is sending the right messages in private about it because they're awfully quiet about it in public. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, there, we are in danger of seeing some some important progress re- reversed. And the other issue we've already mentioned, but we have to keep beating the drum about, is the killings of social leaders. There's um, no other country right now uh, is this dangerous for people who are just trying to exercise independent leaderships in their local areas. And if these voices are silenced, um, armed groups win and narco traffickers win. Well, and a lot of the work that they've done for decades to to essentially lay the foundations for stability um, begins to deteriorate. Right. It's um, not like some new 25-year-old is going to replace right. a 45-year-old who's been leading their community all this time. Well, and I think there's, there's a lot of lost, national So much security. is lost when they're killed. Yes. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, local, national and U.S. national security mm-hmm. interests in, in protecting these social um, leaders, right? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think there is. I mean, there you have the buy-in, you have the, the groundwork. You've got a lot that, that can be, you know, a lot of partnership potential there yes and Mm -hmm. you know but if they're getting killed left and right you you know you're basically going back to square one in some of these communities you've lost the you've lost your way in you've lost the people with credibility so i mean you were talking about throwing a lot of resources into tracking down financial flows you also got to throw a lot of resources into identifying masterminds of these killings who aren't all just armed groups. A lot of them may be people with one foot in legality, identifying them and throwing the book at them. And even just in a few emblematic cases, if you can get some folks in jail, it raises the probability for everybody that something yeah, you won't get away with it if you order the killing of one of these people. Let me let me if ask you, you do that, two, that's even better than sending a bodyguard to everybody. Absolutely. Let me ask you two yes or no questions that we will have yeah. to have longer discussions on later. So the first one, and we'll wrap it up with this, and then you get your shameless plug, right? Um, yeah. So so the yes first yes or no question, does the US itself, right, right. speaking from a national security standpoint and all the programs that we have in Colombia, we have all kinds of U.S. taxpayer dollars tied up in Colombia going back decades, right? Mm-hmm. So my question is, you and I have already said that there, that there should be some interest there in terms of protecting and leveraging partnerships with these social leaders, right? Is that feasible? Is there a way for the U.S. to directly, more directly involve itself in ensuring that and, you know, whether it's partnering with the, the Colombian government or otherwise ensuring some sort of direct protection and support of these social leaders. Is there room for that with the U.S.? Yes or no? Yes, by okay. aiding the special the unit of the prosecutor's office that's in charge of getting at the, the masterminds. Excellent. So we'll have to explore that again another time. And then, so this is the wild card. Um, we didn't get a lot into this subject, but I hope we can, along with a couple of other um, experts. Uh, and that is, it, despite all of the threats, are there also opportunity, you know, threats and risks, are there also opportunities for the private sector, private investments, socially, are there opportunities for socially responsible investment, um, lucrative, socially responsible investment in some of these areas that are still experiencing these setbacks, right? I mean, I, and I, I am going mm-hmm. to caveat this with, there was a time close to the, the time that the peace process was, was signed off on, right? 
that I would have said, hey, get ready to invest in these communities, get ready to support these communities. Um, you know, this is this is long term. This is impact investing. Um, but this is this is feasible. Right. Is there room yeah. for socially responsible investment that will one provide a return on that investment and two provide impact, positive impact to these communities in general? Yes or no? Without land titles and front market roads, no. With okay. them, immense amounts, yes. Is there ways that that can be supported by, by, um, by, by private investment? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, and we can think on that and come up with more ideas yeah. later on, but, but that's what I want to kind of get to is like, okay, is there room, are there possibilities there? You know, is, Endless, is, yes. yeah. is there a frontier market here that might be interesting to those that have both the appetite for risk and the ethical sense to 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 responsibly invest? Endless opportunities. But yes, what you said responsibly, because, you know, Colombia has had wave after wave of displacement when when outsiders move in with investments. So stopping that cycle is crucial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where the land titles and, and things come in. A lot of due diligence behind that. Um, well, excellent. Adam, thank you so much for this discussion. Um, despite some of my tangents and some of our other side things, I think that uh, most of our listeners will find a lot of what we've discussed here at least marginally useful. And, I hope so. And I really hope to have a, a really awesome roundtable with you and several other experts from uh, multiple sectors to kind of you know explore these ideas uh, behind um, partnerships across sectors. And uh, again, thank you for coming on. Do you yeah, have a shameless plug for us? Um, not so shameless. I mean, one, one labor of love of mine is a, a website that we've had for many years called ColumbiaPeace.org that I've just sort of renovated completely and now has an incredible amount of resources on it. Um, so from a timeline of events to every sort of statistic that you might be looking for to a library of reports to, of course, everything we've done, it's all there at ColumbiaPeace.org. Awesome. So anyone who's listening, please go and visit that on Adam's recommendation here. And thank you for all the work that you do, all the work that Wola does. Um, and again, let's, uh, let's get together again in the future and discuss some of these other topics. Thanks, Adam. I'd like that. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.